Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Hello and welcome to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer and I'm joined this week once again by Kelly Weil, our guest host filling in for Swin Soupsang. Kelly, how you doing? I'm all right. How about you? Good. I think it's a packed episode. You know, I think there's a lot that's been going on with our all of the folks on the right. So first of all, Kelly, over the weekend, did you see this viral tweet about a woman who has gone undercover as a MAGA? Yeah, I mean, way to brag about not getting thrown out from uh, QAnon events like you will. Yeah, well, honestly, yeah, it's funny you say that. All right, so, so let's set this up. So yes, yeah, so this is a Twitter account called The Cancel Mob. This woman's named Amanda Moore. And, and I bring this up because this went like pretty viral on the left. And so she says, hey, everyone, my name is Amanda. I've been undercover as a MAGA since the 2020 November Stop the Steal rally in Washington. And then she has a couple pictures of her with MAGA luminaries such as Michael Flynn, some sort of like less luminous luminaries, such as a guy named Red Pill 78 and Vincent Fusca, who our audience may remember as one of two JFK Jr. impersonators we're going to discuss on today's podcast. So basically her thing is like she went undercover and she went to a lot of uh, white supremacist events, a lot of QAnon events, a lot of general uh, hardcore Trump events and had supposedly been wearing a wire I should foreground this. She was in contact with me while she was under. There was one point where she they got her name out there in her face, and she said, "Should I keep going to these events?" I said, "Probably not. No, you know, I mean, there's like hardcore, like racist events in some cases." What do you think of all this, Kelly? I mean, I'm biased, right? Because going undercover as a MAGA, like as an extremely generic-looking white person, I can pretty much already do that. But listen, I think it all depends on what kind of goods someone has. People go undercover in like white supremacist groups, and sometimes it really does out people. It does show hidden agendas. And sometimes this stuff is already fully in the public view. It's fully what people are willing to say on CNN and on their public Facebook pages. So I don't know. I'm a little on the fence about this undercover stuff at this point, because I do wonder what it will reveal. Maybe we'll find out. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I think there is, on both sides of the political aisle, uh, I think there's sort of a, the allure of the either illicitly gained or the secret information, like the the emails, the James O'Keefe recordings, stuff like that, that often reveals sort of like nothing at all. And it's like, well, th- that was a PDF available on their website as well or something like that. I mean, we can think of like the Hillary Clinton emails, right? There's this there's this um, intrigue surrounding the idea that, you know, this isn't something you were meant to see. So we'll see. I mean, I will say to her credit, I mean, she was like pretty, pretty deep in there. I mean, you mentioned uh, QAnon Con in Dallas, where I was, you know, unceremoniously booted. While she was there, you know, she was DMing me about, oh, you know, the people she was hanging out with and how they were. It seemed like she was like relatively close to some of the main characters. We shall see. I mean, this is sort of a proof is in the pudding sort of thing. And look, I mean, it's also, I think, going to set off a plenty of ethical debates. And at least personally, I'm always fascinated by uh, by those kind of uh, intrigues. That's right. Yeah, it's always interesting who can get away with going undercover. I think one show kind of pushing it right now is uh, you've written about them is Undercurrent. And they do hidden camera work. And it's not something we could really get away with as regular journalists, I think. But sometimes it does actually surface something that 
you wish you'd got as a journalist. So it's it's kind of the gray zone. I do think there's a line to be drawn between this sort of activist undercover work, which I think Lauren Windsor at the Undercurrent would certainly say she does. I mean, she, I don't think she would view herself as a journalist necessarily versus somewhat tighter strictures on journalists. But I don't know what to say besides like right now, besides it's all interesting. And Amanda, who went, quote, undercover as a MAGA, she claims maybe there's gonna be a book, maybe there's gonna be some videos. So we shall see. Yeah, if you do go undercover and you want to leak to us, amazing, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, so and speaking of QAnon Con, the QAnon gang led by QAnon John has reunited Oh, reunited last weekend, this time in Las Vegas. Kelly, I have to assume you, unlike me, did not drop 30 bucks on the live stream. No, I should have. It's like a pay-per-view, right? No, I should have taken that from my wrestling fund and uh, diverted it. <laughs> Watch the Patriot double down. Take it off the next Conor McGregor fight. Well, so this is sort of the, the kind of a, a little note here in sort of the idea that like this right wing stuff, there, there, there's so much like little grifts going on. So the Patriot double down, they're, they're selling their live stream for 1776, right? But then you go, it's actually through another site, and it's an additional 10 bucks. So you're kind of getting caught coming and going here. But the, the reason I bring up this QAnon Con round two is because it saw the emergence of Jim Caviezel, who people may remember as Jesus from Passion of the Christ, as a hardcore QAnon dude. This is a, a transformation a, that has been going on for a couple months now, and now Jim Caviezel has averged, emerged from his chrysalis as a QAnon butterfly. Jesus, no. <laughs> yes, no, Jesus, don't do it. Now, Kelly, were you a fan of The Passion of the Christ? You know, I can't pretend that I was in between uh, some Mel Gibson versions and it's just not really my kind of thing. But I am aware of it. I know it's out there. I know it has a following. Yeah, so I went to, to an all-boys Catholic school in Houston and I had this Tradcath teacher who gave us extra credit for going to see it. And my friend had gone to see it, so I just took his movie stub and, you know, whatever, got my extra credit. But So I'm not super familiar with the Caviezel oeuvre, but over the past few months, he's been trending towards Q and on back in April at the Tulsa QAnon convention. So basically, Jim Caviezel has been drawn into this because he's making this movie about Operation Underground Railroad, which is this sort of Q-friendly supposed anti-trafficking organization that we actually had uh, some folks from Vice on uh, on an earlier episode to discuss. So he's making this movie, and he seems to have gotten completely Q-pilled. He, in Tulsa, he had this video where he was talking about adrenochrome, which is people drinking children's blood, all this stuff. And then you can tell even the organizers of this Q-friendly convention are going like, uh, what? And now, this Las Vegas event, he was sort of the, the big mystery guest. There was a lot of like, there's going to be a big reveal. So so he gets up there with this guy named Wano Savin, who's this sort of like celebrity QAnon whisperer. Yeah, that's a deep cut. Yeah, so this is interesting. So this is not one of your main QAnon guys, but he's kind of like emerged in the the post Q. Like Q, obviously, it's almost been a year since the last Q post. This Wano Savin guy, he's another guy people think is JFK Jr. And, and he's just like a strange little guy. His whole thing is he kind of acts like a cowboy he wears like a lot of like cowboy hats and fringe and stuff. And yet his whole thing is he doesn't show his face in his video. And I think there's like a thing right on like Instagram. They'll do like a boyfriend reveal or like a face reveal on Twitch or whatever. Right. <laughs> Actually, like Jim Caviezel, I should say Jim Caviezel's speech at the Las Vegas thing was kind of a snooze. He just weirdly reread a Reagan speech from the 80s and Braveheart, part of Braveheart. And it was like, okay, well, I, I know you're an actor, but like when you're giving a speech, it's supposed to be your own word. But Wano Savin was in many ways sort of the much bigger deal. So Wano Savin was doing his face reveal at this Las Vegas thing. But what's interesting about Juan is he had sort of done it in the past because so his videos, he videos himself and he's usually staring at the camera, staring at his boots. And then he just goes on about like how Washington, D.C. is a monument to a Babylonian sex cult. And then but sometimes he accidentally flips the camera and turns it into selfie mode. Oh, no. And so that has actually revealed his real identity. He's an insurance investigator from Washington State. But basically, this guy has become like the, the QAnon celebrity whisperer. He's really tight with Roseanne as well. Kelly, do you remember when Roseanne was really kind of the toast of the town? God, don't I ever. Yeah, she claimed that she she was getting uh, blocked on her website because she posted about QAnon. She really, one of the uh, Q career fatalities there, just kind of cued it into the ground for herself. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I was just checking up on her and like, her videos are really, it's like Wano Savin, like it'll be like a split screen and it's like Wano Savin's boots and Roseanne vaping in bed. And, you know, for just for it's hours. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> 
So 107 has like obtained this strange like hold over these celebrities. And it's interesting. Last week I wrote about a California Secretary of State candidate who is like engaged in this war against witches. She claims she sent some prayers that got a witch murdered in real life. And I was watching her video that she had with 107. And he's like, yeah, I've been traveling the country with Jim Caviezel raising money for this Operation Underground Railroad movie. And I thought, there's no way Jim Caviezel, who, you know, still has a pretty lively IMDb page, is hanging out with this kind of cut-rate QAnon guy. And then, at the Las Vegas QAnon Con, who comes on stage with 107 but Jim Caviezel? Wait, so I have to ask, does he look anything like projected models of JFK Jr.? We've got too many JFK Juniors now. I need to just kind of rank them and assess. Right. So, of course, we know Vincent Fusca, who's kind of the more famous JFK Jr. Kelly, in the planning doc here, you can see a picture of Juan O'Savin. I guess he looks maybe like a little more like JFK Jr. than Vincent Fusca does. Here's the thing. Juan O'Savin's speeches, like this, this guy was a big deal, I should say. He rolls up. He like you want to talk about like QAnon swag. A lot of these guys, total clowns. Not no stage presence at all. There was a guy who literally got up and just read essentially like urban legend emails about Donald Trump. Like <laughs> once Donald Trump gave such a big tip to his chauffeur and stuff and like for an hour. So but meanwhile, Juan O'Savin rolls up in an Aston Martin during the event and he just like they just start like blasting music and he rolls up. He's a celebrity. He gets on there with That's this. like the, Rih- the Rihanna Met Gala and Trency. I respect it. His whole thing is like centered around maybe he's JFK Jr. He doesn't explicitly say this. Uh, it really hits the the QAnon boomer audience really like right in the, the cerebral cortex, right? Because like he has this book where he's like, in many ways, all of us are just like a child reacting, like watching the JFK assassination, which is obviously a hugely like epical moment for these folks. So he gets on stage with a copy of a dress Melania once wore, and he starts dissecting the symbols of how her dress is a QAnon thing. It's very odd, but, but you know, the crowd was eating it up. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that that's completely out of nowhere. But if Melania didn't want her clothing choices like that interpreted, she shouldn't have worn that. I really don't care. Do you jacket like that's kind of there's an opening there for it. That was a funny one, right? Because people were like, why, why are you reading so much into this jacket? And it was like, well, it was pretty weird. <laughs> so it's just a weird thing to wear just in any scenario. But <laughs> Jim Caviezel's QAnon turn here is interesting, especially because for a while we've seen QAnon like seeping into the GOP. We have QAnon members of Congress. We have this idea, even if people don't explicitly say that they're into Q, this idea that there's a democratic sex cabal has become really accepted. And now I think it's interesting because finally we're getting some overlap between like QAnon and the conservative celebrities. So 107 is kind of racking these guys up. He's got Roseanne. He's got Jim Caviezel. All I have to say is somebody get Scott Bayo and Kevin Sorbo offline. Protect them at all costs. That's right. Oh, my God. We're veering straight toward like a celebrity super group of, of these people. <laughs> Don't let it happen. <laughs> okay, so Kelly, so four years after the uh, fatal white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, a lot of the organizers are finding themselves back in court for a civil lawsuit. What is going on there? Yeah, so this took place, this lawsuit has been in the courts working its way through pretrial stuff for four years. And this lawsuit is really a doozy. It takes aim at all the organizers of Unite the Right, a lot of the main participants. And I've got to run down some of the things that this lawsuit has done even before it went to court, because it's dealing with some of the most noxious, uncooperative people in the country. So it's been really dramatic. It has led to the arrest of one neo-Nazi who just wouldn't turn over court-ordered documents, so he got chucked in jail for contempt of court. It's led to tens of thousands in fines and sanctions against far-right figures and groups. It's led to the release of some really damning and, in my opinion, very embarrassing text messages between white supremacists, like one texting Richard Spencer, like, you are my liege. It's just awful when you <laughs> you already know these people suck and it's like i don't want i don't want any of your pathos just just go to jail um and it's um it's also led to some of these figures are now defending themselves after they managed to piss off their lawyers for not paying their legal bills, being uncooperative, or in one case, they harassed the opposing, uh, the the plaintiff's lawyers so badly 
that this white supremacist lawyer said, nope, not even going there. You're on your own. So we're now headed into trial in a case where these people have kind of been at each other's throats for four years now. So Kelly, who are the plaintiffs in this case? The plaintiffs in this case are nine people who were affected by Unite the Right. They were um, people who were attacked during that torchlit rally. They were people who were in the crowd when James Fields Jr. drove his car in, uh, into anti-racist protesters. They are, there's a preacher who was pretty viciously harassed. All of these people are living with really significant trauma from these events. It's um, it's something that upended a lot of their lives, if not in medical bills, then in PTSD and harassment. So these are people who have, um, they've been in it for the long haul. So who are some of the kind of notorious characters here who, uh, who are in the proverbial dock? So the lawsuit is called Signs v. Kessler, and Kessler is Jason Kessler. He is kind of, in my opinion, a bit of a stooge, like just a run-of-the-mill racist who um, filed the permits to hold Unite the Right. If you look at some of the documents that come out in the discovery process here, all the other white supremacists are just dunking on him in private. They're saying, I can't wait for this event to be over so we can just ditch this guy. He's embarrassing. But he's one of them. There's also more famous figures like Richard Spencer, famous white nationalist. There are several groups that were in attendance, neo-Nazi groups, uh, neo-Confederate groups. And It's also important to note that a lot of these groups have actually dissolved since Unite the Right, and that's because they are facing really intense scrutiny, not just in criminal cases stemming from that rally, but also in civil cases like this. They are on the hook for a lot of money, and a lot of them have just been like, oh, nope, don't know anything about that. Uh, I'm going to rebrand as this other racist group with a slightly different name and try and evade legal culpability that way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, this case kind of reminds me of the Alex Jones Sandy Hook lawsuits and that you have like these people who operate sort of flouting societal mores, often operating outside of the legal system. And then suddenly, like they learn that, for example, like discovery is no joke, like you have to acknowledge subpoenas or you'll get thrown in jail. And so, you know, in this case, I mean, tell me about these uh, text messages, because because right now, correct me if I'm wrong, in the trial, we're still in jury selection. We're still kind of going through the preliminaries. That's right. OK, so these text messages, they're, they're text messages, they're conversations on Discord, which is like a chat platform. Just legal advice to everybody. If you're going to plan like a deadly event involving a car crash, don't have multiple messages being like, it would be so great to hit counter protesters with cars because that's just all throughout the messages. Like it's something that people discussed at length. And there there are other messages too that really undercut the defendant's argument that this was spontaneous violence, right? These guys are talking about pay. They were paying certain people to do this full time. They're talking about organizational structures. They're organizing carpools and they're talking about just gleeful full anticipation of possible violence. So some of the messages are totally cringy, right? You don't want to read any of these people's inner thoughts. But some of them are pretty, I would say, legally damning. There's kind of a, a an interesting sideline to this whole trial, which has been the Milo Yiannopoulos subpoena fight, which has been playing itself out in, in New York. Basically, the setup here is Of course, we all know Milo, the provocateur, who's now supposedly an ex-gay guy. He's kind of getting back on the campus circuit. But anyways, he, for a while, he he has this feud going with Richard Spencer. And he, for a while, would wave around this external hard drive that he called the vault on his live streams. And he would say, this has so much dirt on like everyone involved in the alt-right. Ha ha, I've got all the the blackmail material on everyone. And then the plaintiff's lawyers in this case said, well, great, give it to us. And then they said, well, we're going to subpoena this hard drive. And so then he said, oh, well, you know, oh, and, you know, it came out that he had offered this information to the FBI, which obviously is not awesome for your career in those circles. And then, you know, he's like, well, maybe the hard drive, I don't know where it is. And the judge was like, you know, I'm I'm not playing around here. I mean, you know, you've been subpoenaed. This is obviously relevant to this lawsuit. So eventually, I think supposedly the hard drive was recovered. And we'll have to see if any of those materials make it into the court. Oh, dude, this is also not the first time this has happened in this case. I think it was the leader of the National Socialist Movement that is a party to this lawsuit. He was asked to produce all of their phones so that they could have, you know, an expert make records of them and retrieve their text messages. He's like, oh, man, they fell in the toilet. 
<laughs> there is a lot of that. I feel like we're running into that in January, the January 6th stuff too. And they're like, oh no, it was deleted by someone who's not me. <laughs> so obviously there's uh, another big the legal drama regarding the right wing we're, we're, we're looking at is the January 6th trials. What parallels do you see there? It's interesting because both of these cases involve what the defendants now say was like a spontaneous act of violence, right? They were in a crowd, they let their emotions get away with them, and then you, whoopsie-daisy, you know, break into the Capitol or murder someone with a car. And what the Charlottesville plaintiffs are arguing is that this wasn't really an accident, right? This was organized from the top in white supremacist circles. They stoked this violent rhetoric. They really, really hyped people up for a fight. And then they just loosed them on their enemies. I think there is a similar argument to be made with January 6th defendants, right? It's right now up in the air how much of that riot was pre-planned. But so much of the critical ingredients were really installed, I think, by party leaders. You had all this top-of-the-party rhetoric about the election being stolen, about being a patriot, about standing up. And that, I think, was more motivational in that attack than any specific Proud Boy plot, any specific uh, scheme by the Oath Keepers. So I think both of these cases are really taking to trial the idea of responsibility. What culpability do leaders have over violent followers? Well, it'll certainly be interesting to see how it plays out. Okay, so Kelly, are you on TikTok? (laughs) I have a lurker account and I won't tell anybody what it is. Okay, well, no one will see your uh, your dances. I had to delete TikTok. I found it too addicting. I was spending hours. I had like the impulse control of an eight-year-old. I just got too into it. The algorithm was too powerful. But this week, we have a guest who knows all about TikTok. That's right. We have EJ Dixon of Rolling Stone, who is my spiritual guide to TikTok. I read all of her coverage on it. And she is really plugged in with the conspiracies of the youth, which are spreading on that platform. And, you know, listeners might say, like, why do I have to hear about the slap a teacher challenge, about the devious licks challenge, (laughs) right? But TikTok is such a rich field for truly deranged conspiracy theories. I think back maybe a year ago, Pizzagate was booming on TikTok and all these kids were like rediscovering it. And they're like, man, John John Podesta's got some messed up art in his house. That stuff plays like it's a really visual meme platform. And it's been wild to see where these weird ideas uh, travel on there. But like, I'm always struck by the TikTok videos where like, it'll just say like pop up on the wall, like weird stuff no one talks about. And then the person just like nods at video of like Hillary Clinton at Comet Ping Pong. <laughs> okay, well, let's bring on EJ. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, we are joined by E.J. Dixon of Rolling Stone, where she's a senior writer, and she also co-hosts the Don't Let This Flop podcast. E.J., how's it going? Hi, how are you guys? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So we talk a lot on this podcast about conspiracy theories and mostly how they manifest among older, more conservative audiences on platforms like Facebook. But your reporting delves into the world of the youngs. Can you tell us a little bit about conspiracy TikTok and what people can find there? Sure. So TikTok is a pretty youth-oriented app. 
I mean, at this point, it has, you know, billions and billions of downloads. So it has a larger user base than most people think, wider ranging in terms of age and demographics, but it still skews pretty young. And it's it's a bastion of conspiracy theories of, of all sorts. In the early days of the pandemic, it was home to a lot of the 5G conspiracy theories, a lot of conspiracy theories about how the vaccine, which didn't even exist at that point, was a mark of the beast. And what I've really been focusing on recently is sex trafficking conspiracy theories, which have really taken root on, on TikTok. Yeah, let's talk about those because they're they're so weird, right? It's almost like it's this bipartisan panic where QAnon is obviously informed by these sex trafficking hoaxes. But when I think of the TikTok audience, I think of younger people, maybe even like left or leaning people. How do sex trafficking conspiracy theories play out on TikTok? Yeah, I think bipartisan is a really good word to use. Sex trafficking is typically considered this apolitical issue. Everybody can obviously be against sex trafficking and child sex trafficking in particular. It doesn't have any political affiliation. So that really allows a lot of this content to get massive engagement because it doesn't really fall along political lines. And because TikTok is so oriented towards really short, condensed, grabby content that it really allows these 30-second, minute-long videos that are uh, promoting misinformation about trafficking to really gain a lot of traction very quickly. Yeah, it's not really a hotbed of nuance, or it can be, but it doesn't lend itself to that. Not at all. No. <laughs> so what is one of these viral sex trafficking rumor TikToks? Like, like set the stage. What would one of these look like? So the one that I reported on most recently was TikTok. It, it was really rooted in one video that I actually later found out was from a Facebook post on a local North Carolina police Facebook page that they later retracted. But basically, <laughs> it was so, yeah, very authoritative. But it was this woman who said, who she found a car seat on the side of the road, right? And she was like, this isn't just your ordinary car seat. Sex traffickers are strategically placing these car seats in parking lots in Walmart and Target to use them as bait for young women, specifically young mothers. So when they pick them up, they're going to take you and drag you into their car. So be careful. And she gave the number to an anti-sex trafficking hotline, which I later talked to. And they said they were inundated with calls based on this one TikTok. I mean, what's the logic there? It's like, yes, free car seat. I didn't have one of those, but I wanted it. Is that the idea? Yeah, the idea was basically like nobody would ever leave a car seat. Nobody would ever, which no, and nobody would ever like take a free car seat, which I'm a parent. I know how expensive these things are. I absolutely would take a free car seat. Like if this was a sex trafficking sting, like I would be the perfect victim for it. (laughs) But that was basically the idea. These car seats are so expensive. So if you ever see a free car seat along the road, you know, there's an ulterior motive. It's not just a free car seat. Like somebody's strategically placing these to grab you and take you and sell you into sex slavery. This is like like an ancient urban legend. Like you see a car with with one light out. That's a a gang initiation or what have you. I mean, it, it really seems like these have now just been updated for the TikTok era. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what's really been striking about covering these, this sorts of, this sort of misinformation is that it's really age-old stories repackaged in new boxes. There was a TikTok that was going around last week about men spiking women with injections in the UK specifically. I'm not sure if you guys heard about that. And there's really very, very little evidence to support that this is a thing that is happening. But that's a rumor that has been going on for decades. And TikTok is really kind of the perfect vector for these very old, that one misinformation researcher that I spoke to about this said it's it's old wine packaged in new bottles is really allowing these very stale myths to sort of regain traction. I've also seen a lot on TikTok People who seem to be a little tongue in cheek about conspiracy theories, they'll like talk about the birds aren't real theory or I gotta say, that's the least funny thing I've ever heard of. You know, that whole birds aren't real thing. It's trash. Keep it out of my face. Yep, there's there's enough real conspiracy <laughs> theories. Don't need it. But you recently wrote about a TikToker who went viral taking a Scientology personality test and kind of making fun of it. But it seems like that backfired on them. Yeah. So basically about a month ago, there was this young woman 
who her content was fairly innocuous and she just fairly straightforward comedic videos. And she took a Scientology personality test and it was a somewhat tongue in cheek video. I would say, you know, unless you were, had really seen the other videos on her page, you wouldn't really know what the context was. It would be like a little bit ambiguous, but she tended it as tongue in cheek is what she told me. And it went massively viral. And what was really interesting is that a lot of people in the comments were like, it's called the Oxford personality test, despite not being associated with Oxford or really being a measure of one's personality in any legitimate way. But people in the comments were like, wow, this personality test is amazing. Like, I'm going to go to the Church of Scientology and take it for myself. <laughs> and the next level, the next level of that was the Church of Scientology. People associated with the church really took that and ran with it. And there were Facebook posts where people associated with the church were like, oh my God, this girl's TikTok, this girl is such an amazing representative for the church. Like I'm getting so many calls asking for personality tests. And I actually called the Scientology Center in the town that she was associated with, because at first I was unsure whether or not she was a real Scientologist. And they said that they had gotten dozens more applications than they typically do in a real week for this test as a result of this girl's TikTok going viral. Oh, God. Yeah, that's always going to be the way to like lure people into things like that. Take this test that says that you're really actually very smart and misunderstood and 10 months down the road, you're a Scientologist. So on sites like YouTube, there is an ongoing debate about how to moderate conspiracy content. YouTube has like demonetized some conspiracy videos or it has taken them out of the recommendation algorithm. Is there any parallel on TikTok to how they allow or disallow conspiracy videos? That's a good question. In theory, yes. In practice, no, is my opinion. At the beginning of the pandemic, when conspiracy theories were really extremely rampant on many social media platforms, TikTok was actually sort of ahead of the curve in that it rolled out this very elaborate, detailed anti-misinformation policy, allowing users to report misinformation that had a specific section that was devoted to coronavirus conspiracy theories. And they were really applauded for that because it was leagues ahead of what other social media platforms like YouTube were doing at the time to prevent COVID-related conspiracy theories. But that didn't stop so many conspiracy theories that were related to COVID from going viral on the platform. I think that policy was rolled out a couple months before the Wayfair sex trafficking conspiracy theory, which was sort of COVID-adjacent and really took root on TikTok and blossomed on TikTok, even though it eventually went to Facebook and all the other social media platforms as well. So I would say that in theory, they talk a big game about curbing misinformation on the platform, and they have a lot of guidelines that specifically relate to it. But in practice, I don't really see it implemented very often. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I think you've written about this. There are sort of disparities in who TikTok really cracks down on. I know that the big TikToker Addison Ray, who I feel ancient even talking about, she was like temporarily banned and let back on. And you were making some interesting points about how not all TikTokers really get that leniency. Who is like most likely to get banned on TikTok? In my experience, from my reporting, sex workers. Sex workers are most likely to get banned on TikTok. The platform is incredibly puritanical to the degree that if you even, you know, write the word sex on the platform, like you could get banned. Um, so people have been, even, even teenagers outside the sex industry have been coming up with really creative workarounds for that by using spelling sex S-E-G-G-S, which has sort of like entered the vernacular in a weird way or like Scrippa for stripper. It's extremely aggressive about policing sexualized content. And a lot of sex workers have told me that they've gotten banned for much less than, you know, what Addison Ray ostensibly got reported for, which was, I think, just like a clothed booty shaking video. And it's interesting because you considering the other content that's so egregious that goes wildly viral on the app. It, it seems strange that TikTok would put all of their eggs in that basket and go after sexualized content in particular. I like it. It's like the reemergence of like leet speak, you know, and everyone like typed out words with numbers. Now it's like this weird, uh, weird workaround. So some conspiracy TikTokers I'm not really sure that they actually believe the conspiracies they talk about. They're sort of like the Shane Dawson's where they're like, hey, I just heard this really weird theory and I'm going to share it with you. Is there a sense in which some conspiracy TikTokers will like cash in on the clout of something really weird and inadvertently promote it? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there are some people who have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers who definitely fall into that category. It's kind of similar to the rhetoric that anti-vaxxers use, right? Which is, you guys have obviously covered quite a bit, like a big thing that anti-vaxxers say is, oh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm just asking questions. A lot of the conspiracy theorists on TikTok will sort of blanket themselves in that defense. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm, I'm just asking questions. And that's particularly true with content relating to the vaccine. Speaking of it, I mean, it seems like TikTok's a big place for content about like these kind of kooky legal theories that they think they can use to get around vaccine mandates. Have you seen that on there? I not so much. I haven't seen like arcane legal theories. Can you give me an example of like what some of the stuff is? It's like someone kind of nodding and then they like just show a tweet about like the Nuremberg code and then they go like, hmm. <laughs> TikTok is a really good place, even better than any other social platform, I would argue, at presenting facts or pieces of information without any context and allowing people to derive their own inter interpretations from there. I feel like we're just like ragging on TikTok, which to be clear, I find like massively entertaining as a platform. Are there any TikTokers who are doing like really well with combating misinformation? Yes, there are two, three actually that I'd like to shout out that I really love. Abby Richards is probably the most prominent anti-conspiracy theory researcher on TikTok. She went viral about a year and a half ago with a pyramid of conspiracy theories that was really detailed. And she's been doing really great work combating the misinformation problem on TikTok. And two people who are working in the sex trafficking space specifically, and sort of the anti-fetishization of true crime space are Jessica Dean, who goes by at Bloodbath Beyond, and Maya Morena, who has worked as a sex worker. And they've, built, they've both been really, really active at combating misinformation about sex trafficking specifically. Well, you know, you mentioned true crime. What's going on with true crime TikTok in the aftermath of uh, the Gabby Petito case? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I would say there were a lot of think pieces that were sort of generated by the huge proliferation of conspiracy theories that took place after Gabby Petito went missing. I think the last one that I saw recently that really blew me away just in terms of the level of engagement that it got was it was somebody who lived next door to Brian Laundrie's family. And they took a video of Brian's mom in her garden, like gardening. And he was like behaving kind of weirdly, like, like kneeling down to the ground. And the person's theory was that Brian Laundrie was buried. This is before he was found. It was buried underground and the mom was communicating with him underground. That got millions and millions of views, right? <laughs> Like, I think that there was a lot of reckoning, you know, with the Gabby Petito case of the true crime industrial complex in itself and how toxic and salacious a lot of the coverage is. But there really wasn't a lot of reporting on how TikTok specifically contributed to a lot of the misinformation that was circulating around that case and around other like really prominent true crime cases in particular. Like they have they have a lot of internal reckoning to do regarding how they contributed to that problem. It was also a weird one because, you know, I, I feel like there was a lot of like, oh, isn't it great that these like sleuths are uh, figuring it out? But it was like, it's kind of obvious. It's not exactly a uh, an Agatha Christie thing here, what yeah. the situation was. I, yeah, I had exactly the same reaction when it first broke. And I honestly, I wasn't really sure why it was attracting so much attention for this reason. Like this was unfortunately, this seemed very clearly from the very beginning, like a case of domestic violence, domestic abuse, like where a girl was in a toxic relationship with her partner. And um, just the amount of, what's the word? Contortion, self-contortion that people did to sort of continue the motor humming to keep attention and interest on this very, very sad, but fortunately, I mean, like pretty explicable case was, it was pretty insane to watch that unfold live on TikTok. Yeah. EJ, you also recently wrote about another kind of TikTok adjacent death, and this regarded two cosplayers named Helen and Snow. And can you tell us a little bit about that case and why it is so relevant to like it's the TikTok community that it's sort of placed in? So Helen and Snow, um, they were both prominent cosplayers in the Houston community, Snow more so than Helen. And it was what appears to be the case is that they were at home drinking and they were watching Gotham on TV and Snow said, oh, I have a gun like Penguin. Do you want to see? And they took turns. They thought the gun was unloaded. They took turns playing with the gun, posing with the gun, and, and then the gun shot off, unfortunately. So, you know, on the surface, it's a pretty superficial but very tragic gun accident death. But what was really interesting about the case was that 
before it sort of broke and before people became aware of how Helen had died, Snow had kept posting on TikTok and on social media. And they were making these really elaborate cosplay videos where they were pretending to be a yandare, which is basically an archetype for this um, murderous, villainous character. And they were posing against like blood splattered backdrops and they were lip syncing to songs with really explicit, gruesome lyrics about death and violence. And they were doing this mere months after they had accidentally taken their friend's life. And they were recording this content in the very same house where this accident had taken place. And I found it really interesting. A lot of people were very outraged by the fact that they kept doing this. And I didn't find that as interesting as I found the fact that this was a person who had sort of built their brand on embodying this murderous, villainous female archetype and had built a following of 1.5 million followers as a result of that. And even after they had actually done that in real life, after they'd actually taken a life, they couldn't help but just keep leaning into that brand. And I think, I think it spoke to the way that TikTok kind of fuels this blurring of lines between fantasy and reality and this elevation of this type of persona in the algorithm. That's so weird that like they had to keep performing to that character. Like, for lack of a better word, did that get them canceled at all? Did they lose any following after this event? Oh, yeah. People were outraged. But it's I mean, it's a good question as to whether or not they lost any following, because I would argue they probably I mean, I haven't like crunched the numbers, but just from my observation reporting this story, I would argue they probably gained a following as a result of the social media outrage generated by this incident, which is pretty typical, kind of speaks to the effects that quote unquote cancellation has on social media influencers. A lot of the time, nine times out of 10, it, it really doesn't have a deleterious effect. It kind of fuels the promotion of their brand, especially when their brand, as it was with the case of Snow, was really predicated on controversy and, and on violence in the first place. So EJ, your podcast, Don't Let This Flop, obviously, is about TikTok. And, and I was wondering if I could bring a TikTok grievance to you. Sure, go for it. So you know those videos that start with like the automated voice, which in my impression is like 30% of TikTok now? Yeah, like how I get up in the morning. Like that? Is that what yeah, that is guaranteed. I'll tell you what, if you start a TikTok and that's the voice, you can skip it. It's guaranteed to be terrible content. It's often like weirdly passive aggressive. Like it's just something I've noted. I think it is a telltale sign of garbage. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's wrong. It's a pretty lazy storytelling format for sure. Great. So you've written about the effect that TikTok can have in, in terms of harnessing entire generations of a obsessive focus on a single person or a couple. Uh, can you tell us about Couch Guy? Oh, my God. You guys are going deep. <laughs> so Couch Guy is... So there was a video that went viral a couple of weeks ago of this girl visiting her, surprising her boyfriend at college. They're in a long distance relationship and she walks in. The never a good call. Never a good call. Being a, yes. <laughs> Being in a long distance relationship. Sure. <laughs> and it's a really short video. It's like 10, 15 seconds long. Ellie Goulding is playing in the background. Like it's supposed to, it's clearly supposed to be like very heartrending and poignant. But because of the boyfriend's reaction, he's sitting on the couch. He gets up. He's surrounded by like two or three other girls. And he's, you know, surprised to see her because of his reaction and because of the fact that he was surrounded by other women on the couch at the time that she surprised him. People started parsing in very minute detail what the, the how like toxic this relationship is and assuming that he was cheating on her. And they started calling him couch guy. And it sort of became a meme unto itself. I feel like this is the flip side of the true crime popularity on that site. Like even if there isn't a crime, they've got to manufacture one, right? You've got to dig through the body language and ascribe all these characteristics to a person and a relationship. Yeah. So this, I mean, this, this girl walks in, right? And she, her boyfriend is on the couch. And he looks a little like, you know, he's like, oh, hello, my girlfriend's here. And then, I mean, people treat this footage like this Apruder film. They're like, oh, like <laughs> he, he takes her phone or is it his phone? And does he like put it on her leg or like put it on the table? And I got to say, I came to this sort of late as sort of a phenomenon of like, oh, how messed up TikTok is. It's terrorizing this young couple. And yet I, I found myself, I was like, I got some takes on this myself. It's kind of an inkblot test. You sort of see your own opinions. And obviously kind of college relationships, I think, are something so many people have, have experienced. And so I, I sort of felt to myself projecting my own experiences onto it. Yeah. It's a generational PTSD film. It's like, oh, I can see what's happening here. Yeah, you know? I, I'm flashing back to a certain pregame. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of insane to me just how few people were like, this is really fucked up. 
that we're talking so much about this like 19 year old couple and speculating about their sex lives. Like that was really that reaction. It existed, but it was very, very marginal. So many people became like instantly immersed in the psychodrama of these people's lives based on like an eight or 10 second video. And I think that you're you're right. Like it is absolutely a byproduct of the true crime effect that we just feel the need to be, even when a mystery doesn't exist, we feel the need to be creating one out of thin air. It's almost like an attention surplus, right? You know, there's always this accusation that Twitter is giving us an attention deficit or whatever, but here is like, a million people focusing all their attention on something that really doesn't bear that weight. Yeah, exactly. And the guy, couch guy, you know, the, the girlfriend, clearly there was some behind the scenes conversation where the girl was like, hey, you know, you, you really got to go on TikTok and defend me because this is getting out of hand. And he made a video that was like, you guys are developing a parasocial relationship with like someone you don't know, like go outside and touch some grass. And he was absolutely right, right? Like that's, that is the perfect and correct interpretation of what was going on here. But he got roasted for it. And people started accusing him of gaslighting and trying to convince the internet that he wasn't cheating when he actually was. And it just backfired tremendously. Yeah, firm stand here. I stand with Couch Guy. That's the only right answer in that situation. EJ, thank you so much for joining us. This is fascinating. I feel at least 48 years old. Thank you. Thank you so much for having Okay, so EJ Dixon, you're on Twitter at EJ Dixon, and the podcast is called Don't Let This Flop. I feel like it keeps me young. It's kind of a fountain of youth. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Will, I understand you have some new MAGA tunes that you are bumping on your DJ nights. What's going on there? (laughs) Yeah, so for this week's Fresh Hell, I thought we would take a look into the booming world of pro-Trump anti-vaccine tunage. I figured we'd have maybe a showdown here between two songs that are hitting, that really are hitting the top of the iTunes charts. I'm not really doing a lot of crate digging here. I mean, this this is legit stuff. Okay, so first up, we've got Bryson Gray, who's this MAGA rapper, who people may remember. That's such a MAGA rapper name. Go on. (laughs) Right. My timeline is just like filled with these MAGA rappers. Anyway, I mean, it's a very diverse (laughs) field. So Bryson Gray, he's famous, I guess, for starting the MAGA challenge, which was this challenged people to do raps. And his rap, I guess, had like some rhythm to it. It didn't like really like burn your ears. But then this inspired all of these kind of -of run-of-the-mill Trump supporters to do. I mean, the classic one, I don't know if this is a MAGA challenge, but it was like, I'm a MAGA kid. I'm a MAGA kid. I'm here to flip your liberal lids. <laughs> this reminds me of flat earth conferences. If you ask anybody at a flat earth conference, if they can like just drop a few bars, they absolutely can. And they are waiting for someone to ask. I could imagine that being a huge overlap between the flat earthers and the freestyle rappers. So we got Bryson Gray here has this new song called Let's Go Brandon. Of course, Fever Dreams listeners will remember that Let's Go Brandon is sort of code for, you know, F Joe Biden. So we'll play a couple bars here. Back place, smear the queer man. You can take the vax, I fear God. I don't fear man. I'm on gear 10, believe me, we ready to rumble. The only play the joke can execute is a fumble. I think we all know he's out to lunch. That dude went camping. I'm a Christian, so how do I say this? Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. I keep a drum like I'm Nick Cannon. Hey, hey, let's go, Brandon. Pandemic ain't real, they just planted. Hey, hey, let's he go, says, Brandon. He says, look at Australia, that's what's coming if we don't stand up. Stop complying with them, taking our rights. It's time to man up. Now, this, of course, calls back to the idea on the right that Australia is a sort of dystopian scene out of 1984. Although I will admit, a lot of tackling guys over there just for going to the beach. Kelly, what do you think of this song? Can I interject as an Australia husband woman? Like... There was indeed quite a lot of tackling people for going to the beach, and now they have like a 90% vaccination rate. Like, yeah, they went pretty hard, and now they're doing way better than the U.S. So this whole making Australia this like right-wing cause in the U.S., like people were rallying outside the Australian consulate in New York. None of them were Australian. It's just so goddamn weird to me. And I don't think I will put this on my Spotify rotation for that reason. And so there's another issue. Like, you know, people might be saying, when will Let's Go Brandon appear on Rap Caviar? When can I play this at my autumn, my cider party? But unfortunately, would it surprise you to learn that Let's Go Brandon 
And then despite its huge popularity and being feted on Fox News, does not have some very nice lyrics. Oh, that's a shock. So, I mean, this is a song that Sean Hannity tweets, it's a hit. And he's celebrating that it's beating Adele. Okay. There's kind of this sense that these things sort of have their own cycle because they typically will get pulled from YouTube or because, you know, there's probably something about vaccines in there or masks. And then that becomes kind of the justification for a place like Fox News to write about it. However, digging in the lyrics here, we've got a line, I wish you, I could take you in the back. Play smear the queer, man. Bryson, not cool. No, that's not very small government, buddy. That's not very no tread on me. I think that line sort of reveals an inability to make kind of like a clean hit. Like we're just going to have this song that is going to get pulled off of YouTube and get get some controversy behind it. That I do think it's interesting that these relatively establishment Republican figures like Sean Hannity are are praising this uh, pretty ugly song. Yeah, I mean, this has happened a couple times, right? I think last year there was a there was a country musician and they're like, why aren't they playing his conservative tunes on country radio? Which, first of all, is extremely conservative leaning. And you go through this guy's back catalog and he has literally a pro-lynching song. It's like, you gotta do just a cursory dig through the back catalog, you know? So next up, we've got the comparatively unproblematic hit, This Is a War, a song by a guy named Hi-Rez and Jimmy Levy, who I would describe as sort of a classic big guy, little guy group. You've got like one guy's a big guy with a big old beard, and then Jimmy Levy's like a little guy, and Jimmy Levy's the rapper. And so, you know, we'll play a little music here. But basically, this is a song about how much they hate anti-coronavirus measures and vaccine mandates. They've got this is a war being it's kind of like a great reset thing. Like coronavirus is all part of a scheme to to enslave us. It's great. And big guy, little guy. This is this is like the uh, MAGA run the jewels, I think. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it sort of is. I mean, you really just hit the nail on the head. Like, I'm looking at a picture of them. I'm like, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> In their music video, they go to some sort of anti-vaccine rally. And of course, they have to blur a bunch of the signs so they don't get deleted off of YouTube. All of this, the high res here is providing sort of the deep gospel voice and about this is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. Like, eh, wink, wink, where we go, when we go all. So, yeah, I mean, this is another big hit for him. I mean, Maka likes incorporating rap music where they can. I'm reminded of this rap duo that performed shortly before the riot uh, on January 6th, and it was the best Milk crowd I've ever seen of just like just like slightly uncomfortable guys in MAGA hats like like do we nod our heads what do we do what do we do here <laughs> there's definitely a sense that like obviously rap is like a very dominant cultural form but it's not one they have a ton of experience with they're experimenting exactly so I think what is the success of let's go Brandon and this is a war tell us what would you say Kelly I think this is Something that people on the right can definitely monetize, right? You piss out a little song, does okay. You gin up this controversy about why is it not doing better. You get a bit more money. And listen, these things can continue to feed themselves in their closed ecosystem. It's not something that's going away. I think it's just something that you have to play run the jewels a little bit louder. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.